Awesome, God. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John. We're continuing our series on John, looking at John chapter 14 and finishing that passage off from 15 to 31. And as we look at that verse, as we look at these verses, there's something that kind of comes up in here. Uh, Here Jesus begins to tie our actions, our obedience, to how we love him. And it's funny because in our world, this word obedience is such a strong word. We don't like it. I don't like it. When someone says you must obey, I'm like, ah. We live in a world of mandates where people are telling all of us that we have to obey something. And I'm not going to lie. I struggle with being told what to do. I am a human person. I suffer with those things. But here Jesus comes and he ties together our actions of obedience to our love of him. Jesus ties them together, both the law and his grace, obedience and his grace in our love. And he ties them together, and one is dependent on the other, and one shows proof of the other. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them. Follow along with me as we read from John 14, verse 15, all the way to 31. And this is the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no longer. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in in my Father, and, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, will come to, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe." I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and to continue to worship you. Lord, this is an act of worship and praise. And Lord, there's nothing that we can do to make this turn out well. So Lord, I pray that you would make this turn out well for your glory. 
Lord, we pray for other gospel-preaching churches here in London who are gathering in the same way we are to worship you. So, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for the church here in London, that we would shine brightly for you, that we would be an encouragement to one another, but that we would be faithful in going out and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Not only would we grow in the grace and the knowledge of you as individuals and as a church, but may we shine brightly for you, sharing this good news, the hope of Jesus Christ to a broken world, to a broken city. So, Lord, we pray for churches that do that. And we pray for our sister churches, Lord, and our brothers and sister churches here who preach the gospel. And specifically, Lord, I think of Stony Creek and for Pastor Mark. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with them and the elders there as they continue to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you bless them as they seek to faithfully shepherd the flock that you have entrusted to them. And Lord, as we continue to worship you by your spirit, Lord, will you help me to preach this sermon with what is needed? God, you above all know that I can't do this without you, so will you not make this turn out well? By your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. If you look back at what has happened so far in our passage, as you know, what comes before 14 is 13. Uh, so we were in John chapter 13 not too long ago, but Jesus there, he tells his disciples that he is going to a place that they can't follow. He gives them the command to love and to serve just as they have been loved and served by Jesus. So he says, as I have loved and served you, now you go and do the same. This is evidence of your salvation, he says. And Peter, like classic Peter, uh, he boldly says that he will go with Jesus. He'll go with Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus replies to Peter and he says, that's not going to happen, Peter. You're actually going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, what? No, never. Emphatically, he says that. In light of all this is Judas's betrayal as well. He's given these commands. He's given these two commands to serve and to love our fellow believers in Christ as he has loved us in light of his betrayal and Peter's denial of him. And he continues on in, verse four, in chapter 14 and he encourages them to let their hearts not be troubled. And as he concludes his this, uh, this dinner time of Passover, he gives yet another command to his people. In verses 15 to 17, we see that the Holy Spirit will be in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. In verse 15, it comes and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. I think you could preach probably a few sermons just on that one sentence. But I won't. There's a cause and effect. There's a cause and effect relationship in God's economy which we may be absolutely certain of our salvation and we can actually get comfort from these verses. The grammar here is actually future. That's why the ESV translated just as it does. You say you love me, he says, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. And there's a lot to dwell upon as we look at this passage on that simple verse. Like, how do you define love? Our world has one way of defining it, but God defines it another way. Is, is love whatever feels good? Do it? Because our world certainly says that. 
History tells us that that can't be true. Even in the Bible it says that, right? It says flat out right there in Jeremiah that the heart is corrupt above all things. So if I go along and I'm coming around and I'm saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever feels good, probably not going to turn out well for you. And by probably, I mean it's not. So it can't be that. The love that we see here, the love that is commanded, is a love that doesn't free us from keeping God's law, but frees us to keeping his commands. The command is rooted in Deuteronomy, like in Deuteronomy 5.10, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands, Jesus says to the people in the Old Testament. If you love Jesus, the love will draw us to thoughts and actions that conform with Jesus' thoughts and actions, and they will please him. Flat out, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. And some of us are going, well, that sounds really legalistic. Obedience seems really legalistic. One commentary said it this way, it was by his obedience that Jesus showed his love to God. And it is by our obedience that we must show our love to Jesus. Our actions demonstrate what we truly care about. If our house is burning and the first thing that you go for is your computer instead of your family, that kind of shows what you care about. I hope nobody does that. (laughs) But our actions do show what we truly care about, what we do love. And Jesus says that those actions of his followers will show whether or not they love him. This isn't an option. This is a command by the one who died for you, who purchased your soul who transferred you from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. If they love him, they will obey him. And true love manifests itself in a willing obedience. None of the promises that follow through here of the fruitfulness will come to those who think they can manipulate the exalted Christ. You can't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you so much, and have a life that lives counter to who Jesus is. You can't manipulate God. And some of us walk through life trying to manipulate him, trying to think that we can get away with things. But you can't. He knows all. He sees all. He knows your heart. Your actions don't save you, but are evidence of that saving faith. And the proof of love for Christ is not an oral profession, but living obedience. Just as Israel was was to show love for the Lord by allegiance to his commands. But what are these commands? In 1 John, in 1 John 5, 2, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. Remember, this passage comes here and he says, Let, If you love me, you will keep my commands. What are the commands that Jesus has just given? He's told us that we are to love one another as he has loved us, which is a huge statement in itself. Jesus' love for his own brought him to the cross. Yet some of us struggle with even being hospitable. 
You see the context here? Jesus says to serve. As he bowed down onto his knees, the creator of the world went down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet, including the one that would betray him and including the one that would deny him. Yet we come to this and say, well, that person hurt me, therefore I'm not going to. And Jesus comes right here in verse 15 and he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's a litmus test for you, isn't it? That really shows my heart, what I struggle with, and I hope it does for you too. But the question comes up here is, but God, I don't, I still sin. I, I, I don't obey God perfectly. And as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Second Peter 3 says, we overcome besetting sins, as Hebrews 12 says. Peter lists steps we can take in developing our new nature and ends with the promise that if we do these things, we will never stumble, he says in 2 Peter 1. Our holiness is the goal, but John acknowledges that we still sin in 1 John 2 when he says, my dear children, I love this passage, my dear children, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody, if anybody does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, God's desire for us is that we we not sin, but one day our sanctification will be complete. But until that time, we still inhabit fallen bodies in a fallen world, and we struggle with the flesh, and sometimes we lose the battles, but we will not be lost. Jesus himself intercedes for us as his high priest. So again, my obedience is not one way that I win more favor with God. It's evidence of what God has already done in my heart. The Holy Spirit indwells within me. me. He gives me a new heart. He's making me more like Christ. He's changing my desires from what I used to desire to what He desires. But did you read that sentence? Did you read verse 15, really? If you love me, you will keep my commands, it says. Read it carefully. Read what it is saying and not what it isn't saying. If we love him, we will obey him. Jesus doesn't say that if we obey him, he will love us. Now you can breathe. Now you can sigh. Now you can rest. Because the gospel turns everything right side up. We can't do anything to earn or maintain a relationship with God. Our obedience gives us nothing, but our obedience is an important affirmation of our love for Jesus. It is by Jesus' obedience that we are saved, not mine. His righteousness is imputed upon me. We show our gratitude for this amazing gift that God saved a wretch like me by seeking to be obedient. Are you amazed that God saved a wretch like you? The outcome of that is obedience. He saved your wretched soul, as the song says. What other reason is there to want to obey? 
Our obedience comes from our love for Jesus. And it's an expression of our gratitude for such an amazing gift of salvation. And the outcome of that is in verse 16. And I will ask the Father. The first thing about being a disciple of Jesus isn't that their obedience shows their love for Jesus. But the, sorry, the first thing about this uh, is that we see that the disciples love for Jesus is shown through their obedience. But the second thing about being a disciple of Jesus is that he makes a promise that he will intercede with the Father on our behalf for those who love him. And throughout the Bible, we see that there's a blessing that comes along with obedience, and there's a curse that comes along with disobedience. And the blessing here is that Jesus will intercede upon us, on our behalf to the Father, and we will receive a helper. They will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' followers will love him, they will obey him, and he, on his part, on Jesus' part, will give them the Holy Spirit. He is a helper, like a counselor or a comforter, but not like a camp counselor. I hope not. Not like a marriage counselor more like a legal counsel. It's not a wrong word, but it's more like a legal counselor that you're looking at. He will be a comforter as well, but comforter may seem a little weird, right? It's not like I'm going to go home, I got this weighted blanket that my son stole from me. It's a beautiful thing. You sit there on the couch, you put on the, like, the recliner thing, and you put this weighted blanket on, it's like, yeah... Life is good. But not like that. Not like a do-gooder. And I think for most of us English speakers, we need to kind of give up on that. But he is a helper. But even that has subordinates, has under overtones of subordination and inferiority. Whatever the word we use to describe the Holy Spirit must be held in tension with what we see. The Holy Spirit comes to strengthen and to help his disciples just as Jesus did right here while he was on the earth. And he is, as verse 17 says, he is the spirit of truth. He, he communicates the truth about who Jesus is, who is the truth. He brings truth to men and women's hearts like you and me and convicts us of our sin and the need of a Savior. He reminds us of who Jesus is as we spend time in his word together and the light of the truth shines on our sin. It convicts us of our sin and shows us that need of a Savior. But this is a gift that the world cannot understand, who cannot receive it as he continues on. Just as those who haven't been born again can't see the kingdom of God, as John 3.3 says, those who haven't been born again can't see or know the Spirit. This is a gift for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, what? Folly to him. And, it, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. For he dwells within you and will be in you, Jesus promises, that the Spirit that is taking up resonance within his disciples will continue to do the work that Jesus started. And there's something that we need to catch here. John is very specific. He uses a pronoun, him, to describe the Holy Spirit. For those of us who like Star Wars, he's not a force. He's not some sort of like, I don't know, ghost of some kind. 
Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. And we should never talk about the Holy Spirit as just an influence or a force or not give him the glory due him by calling him it. He is God. And I think he's often a forgotten God. And Jesus continues to teach his disciples in these verses as he gets ready for his ascension, for when he goes to be with his Father. And he talks about this amazing doctrine called the Trinity, and it is important. There's a lot of mystery here. But let us affirm what is clearly talked about in this text. The better we know Jesus, the more Trinitarian we will become. The gospel is the means by which we enter the fellowship and the love and the joy shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. And it is an amazing thing to think about. In Christ, Jesus is the perfect Son whose obedience is counted as our own, the basis upon which the Father adopts us as his beloved children. The Spirit comes into our hearts as the Spirit of Sonship, as Romans 8 says, freeing us from our orphan-like ways, leading us into a greater intimacy with the Father and the Son. And think about it. We are the room in which the Trinity takes up residence. We are the new temple among all the nations. And the Holy Spirit indwells us and shows us enabling us to show our love to the Savior who has saved us. And I think we look at this, like I was saying, we go, wow, that sounds a little legalistic. You know in uh, the movie Princess Bride, classic, uh, there's a scene where one of the, the guy with the long hair is talking to the leader of the, the gang there, and he, the leader of the gang keeps using this word. And then the guy with the long hair says something along the lines of, You keep using this word, but I don't think you understand what it means. And that's what I think happens with the word legalists. We label that a lot. Oh, that person's a legalist. But all they're seeking to do is to obey the one who saved them. They're seeking to be faithful to the word of God. To be a legalist means that you are putting something in the way that you think that you can do something so that you can make yourself saved. The word legalist is a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulation for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. That's what legalism is. That's not what it means. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus does say, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And how do we avoid being legalistic? We can start by holding fast to the words of the Apostle John in John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And remembering to be gracious, especially to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Who are, as Romans 14 says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands and falls, and he will stand for the Lord as able to make him stand. You then, why do you judge your brothers? Or why do you look down on your brothers? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And it doesn't mean that we don't hold each other to the bar that God has called us, but it means that we don't add to that. But Jesus clearly says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 
Our actions demonstrate what we truly care about. And Jesus says that the actions of his followers will show whether or not they love him. You can't just profess Jesus Christ and continue on in living the same way. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, he will not allow you to continue in those sinful habits. You will have a desire to obey. You will want to obey. It doesn't mean you'll always get it right. It is not legalistic to want to obey your Savior. It shows that you love him. And none of the promises of fruitfulness will come to those who think that they can manipulate the exalted Christ or use him for their own ends. Your actions don't save you, but they are evidence of a saving faith. In verses 18 to 24, we're reminded that Jesus will be coming. So back in 12, verses 12 to 14, Jesus tells his disciples that they are supposed to do while he is gone, and he tells them about the Holy Spirit that will dwell in them as he is gone. And he says in verse 18, I love this, as he says, I will not leave you as orphans. It's understandable that Jesus is talking about how he is leaving. How would you feel if the one that you've been following for three years that you've poured so much into suddenly says, hey, I'm going to be leaving? I would feel orphaned. But Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And this is, one first, this is first of two I wills that he talks about. Jesus takes time to remind them again that he won't leave them alone. And he says to his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless. And I will come to you. As he says, because I live, you also live and the promise of the resurrection comes true and he emphasizes again the truth that we look at in verses uh, chapter 11 verses 25 to 26 and jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this life is found in jesus christ alone the indwelling of the Spirit gives us comfort. In verse 20, in that day you will know, the disciples will understand the Trinity. They'll become more aware and understanding of what is happening around them. They'll understand more about what it means to be united with Christ. And the dwelling of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will create a living, continual, empowering relationship, uniting Jesus to his disciples. It's a, it's a mutual indwelling of the peoples of the Trinity, and it, it is paralleled by the mutual indwelling of Christ and the believers. So in what we're talking about here, in other words, is that the fruit of if you love me, you will obey me, is that you will not be an orphan. We have people in our midst who... Once they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their biological family has written them off. But they're not orphans. They're in Christ's family. Where Christ is the head. But further, they are now part of our family here as a church. There are people that need grandparents. There are people who need parents. There are people who need kids. 
We have all these generations shown in our church, and we can be the family. That's the practical outcome of not being an orphan. And this is why what Jesus said earlier about loving one another and serving one another is so important. The church is the practical outpouring of what we are not, what we are. We are not orphans. And he will love them, and he will love him and manifest himself to him. And Jesus goes back to verse 15. Remember the washing of the feet? Remember how he loved us and called us to love one another as he loves us? Those who love, trust, and believe what Jesus taught will also do as Jesus, is, Jesus teaches and does, which shows the love the disciples have for Jesus. Obedience to Christ is the indication of a genuine love for him. Why do you obey Why do you obey Jesus? Just because he tells you? The more I'm aware of what God has done for me, the more I'm aware of how detestable my sin is before a holy God, the more I understand what God has done by calling me out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the more I understand what it means to be adopted as a son of of, of God, The more I understand these things, the more I grow in awe and wonder. And the outcome of that is a growing love and desire to obey. Our obedience doesn't win us merit points with God, but it shows us whose we are. And those who love Jesus will be loved by the Father, as he says in 21. And God is pleased by those who obey those who love him those who trust him, and those who believe what is being taught. In the same way, those who obey Jesus will be loved by him. There is no greater motivation for obedience than the love of God. If the love of God doesn't motivate us to obey, nothing will. Absolutely nothing. How God has shown us his love for us, for me, for you, is a reminder that I can trust him. As you, sh- as, you, as you go out in your life, has God ever, ever broken his promises? Are you sure, God, are you saying to yourself, are you sure, God, that all of these hardships are good for me? Are you sure, God, that, that you are going to work out all things for my good, God? I don't understand, Lord, what is happening. Uh, and he, and he, Jesus comes here and he, he points us to the cross and he says, yes, all of these things will be worked out for our good. If the love of God doesn't motivate us to obey, nothing will. And this is not about earning God's love. This is not about the way love works. It would be against what Jesus said in John three sixteen, which Pastor Matt read for us. It's there we see how God loves a hostile world by sending his only son. The Bible is clear, as Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does my wife... She was making fun of me yesterday, so I said, uh, I'm going to use you as a sermon illustration. <laughs> and, she, and she's like, that's fine, I'm not here. <laughs> How does my wife know I love her? Me just simply saying I love you? 
Is that it? Is that all it takes for my wife to know that I love her? There has to be an action that follows through. How, how, how do you know that someone loves you? By them just saying, hey, I love you? Or was there a tangible action that happened? And this is what Jesus reminds us of here. That if we love God, if we love Jesus, we will keep his commands and it comes out in our lives. And that there's a promise that comes through in that. In verse 21, he says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. You catch the promise? You want more Jesus? You want more Jesus? I want more Jesus. You want more Jesus? The way to experience more Jesus is to obey his commands. As he continues on, the Lord, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit will indwell the believers along with the Father, the Son, who do so through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We wait for the time when our faith will be exchanged for sight and our hope for certainty. Our peace and joy are not perfect right now. They are nothing to what we will have when Jesus comes back. When we look to Jesus' return, as he talks about here, let us look and long and pray for it. Let us place it in the front of our minds. And the Holy Spirit won't just be with the disciples to empower them, but he also teaches them, as we see in verse 25 to 31, the Holy Spirit will continue to minister to the same message and purpose and character of Jesus as he reminds his disciples of all that Jesus said. Verse 26, he will teach you all things and bring you to your, your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is important because at some point the disciples will transition into the apostles and God will use them to, to write the very words that we see here, which is an important promise. The future role of writing the words of Scripture so the promise is specific to the disciples who are listening to this, but it's also a passage that we see like in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, or in Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, or in Galatians uh, 5, 18, where it says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's a broader teaching of guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all believers, and he will teach his disciples all things that are needed to the soul. Not everything in the world, obviously. You've got to hold it in tension, and there is no more special revelation but he will give you what is needed to obey. Back in 1993, uh, there was a movie called Meteor Man, which I don't know for some reason I remember. I watched it, and I loved it. I don't know why. But the whole concept of it, it was uh, starred by a guy named Robert Townsend. And the whole concept of it is this guy was just walking down the street, and this meteor comes from the sky, and it hits him, and his body absorbs the meteor but one of his cool special powers was that every time he touched a book, he would absorb all the information into his head for a certain amount of time. I remember watching that as a kid and going, man, that's what I really want to have. I got a test coming up. You know, it's not like me, the Holy Spirit doesn't work like, dear Lord, I, I am pleased by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to, to write this exam well that I didn't study for. 
It doesn't work like that. But the Holy Spirit will help you to recall those things you have been studying about in God's Word. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're sharing the gospel with them and all of a sudden you're getting all, you're like, and, and you've had the conversation, the conversation's over and you kind of sit back and maybe you're in a chair and you sit back and you kind of think about it after everyone leaves and you go, where did those words come from? How did I remember all those things? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit gives us peace, as verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you. The indwelling of the Spirit will give you these things. And this is a peace the the world cannot offer. This is something that only Jesus can give, and it surpasses any quality of peace. It's with this peace that he urges them to not let their hearts be troubled. And then he tells them to rejoice. He's telling the disciples to rejoice even though Jesus has just told them that he's going to leave. And then he says, uh, rejoice because I'm leaving. You go, why? How? When? That's crazy. If the disciples loved him, if they loved Jesus, they would focus on all that God would accomplish by him leaving. And that would prompt rejoicing. They wouldn't fixate on Jesus leaving, but on what is being accomplished when Jesus leaves. But then in verse 30, 31, he makes a great statement about his authority as he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that this world may know that I love the Father. I will no longer talk much with you, he says, for the ruler of this world is coming. See, Satan, if you remember from the narrative from this account that is happening right now, Satan has just entered into Judas, and Judas is coming to betray, meaning that Satan is coming, and that's what Jesus is referring to. Satan doesn't have a claim on Jesus. And the only reason Jesus will be taken is that he is obeying the Father and demonstrating to the world his love for the Father by laying down his life for us. The gospel has implications for our life now. And the gospel holds it into tension, the law and love that we obey because we love We love because we've first been loved, and our hearts won't be troubled because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a hope that Jesus will return. So what do we do with all this? We have more than enough to love and obey Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and by prayer in Jesus' name. We have more than enough to love and obey Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we will enjoy the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit as he comes to and teaches us, meditating the present, mediating the presence of the Father and the Son. We've seen some deep theology here with the Father and Jesus as absolute agreement concerning holiness and love and trust, 
belief in what is true and obedience. We see that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and to have Jesus manifest himself to us, we must love Jesus, and we should love Jesus because he's worthy of it all. There is no greater reason to love him other than he first loved us. And we must obey the commands of Jesus, and we will never regret doing this. How are we to obey? How are we to love Jesus and keep his commands? Well, read his word. He already told us. Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You can kind of hear the sneering in his voice. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So back in verse 13 and 14, Jesus makes a promise to answer the prayers made in his name. And he promised in verses 15 to 17 that the spirit of truth will come as another helper. And the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer in the name of Jesus are more than enough to enable us to love and obey. It's not legalistic to seek to obey and be faithful to what Jesus calls us to be. It's loving. I would really struggle as a parent if my kid keeps saying I love you as they're disobeying me. Loving the one who stepped down from his throne, who died for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of his father and will one day return is not legalistic, it's loving. How we treat one another and those who stumble can become legalistic. But we have more than enough to love and obey Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and by prayer in Jesus' name. Let us continue to worship our awesome God. Father, we thank you for the reminder of the importance of what it means to love you and that if we love you, we will obey you. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be a people known by grace but that we would love one another as you have loved us, that we would serve one another as you have served us, and that we would obey you in these commandments because we love you. Because, Lord, look at all that you've done for us. You are worthy of it all. And may you be glorified. And amen.